Made Visible helps people with invisible illnesses feel seen and heard. It provides a platform for people who seem fine but aren't to share their experiences. It also helps to create a new awareness of how we can be sensitive and supportive to those with invisible illnesses. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro, and I'm so glad you tuned in today. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is an online counseling service that matches you with a licensed professional therapist. Today's guest, Devry Velasquez, is someone who, unlike many of us, received a diagnosis quite quickly. I'm excited to talk to her about her health experience and the importance of advocacy work. Welcome, Devry. Hi, thank you for having me. Absolutely. So excited. I love that we connected on Instagram, which seems to be where a lot of connections are happening these days. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and what you do? So I am originally from Texas, born and raised. I was born in Corpus Christi, Texas, and moved to Austin when I was five, and then lived in Houston for some time for university. I moved to the East Coast. I started with DC and then kind of migrated to New York. And now I live in Brooklyn, New York, where I am a writer and content editor. Amazing. Austin is one of my favorite places. As a native New Yorker, there are not many places that I say that I would live. But when I discovered Austin years ago for South by Southwest, I just fell madly in love with that city. It's a great city to have grown up in. And I realize now, as I've gotten older, how privileged and lucky I was to grow up there. It's a beautiful place. It really, really is. So you were diagnosed with a rare autoimmune vascular disease called Tychiasu's arteritis. That is a mouthful. When you were 20 years old. For those who aren't familiar with this, can you talk a bit about what it is and how you were diagnosed? It was 10 years ago. It just started as a series of flu-like symptoms as a lot of people's stories begin. I remember I was finishing up the last semester, last few weeks actually of undergrad. I was going downhill fast, probably around February or March of that year. And by May, I had a family reunion and my family hadn't seen me in so long. And I was finally confronted with my parents who noticed my appearance and how different I looked. And I had before that chalked it up to stress because I was working a part-time job. I was finishing school. I was in a new relationship. I was just struggling to pay my bills in my new apartment. And when my mom saw me, who is a registered nurse, she noticed immediately that something wasn't right. My skin was jaundiced and my eyes were jaundiced. I had lost a lot of weight. And she checked my pulse and my heart rate. And my pulse was like 160 or something really crazy. And she said, I don't know how you're even standing up right now. I don't know how you're functioning because this is dangerously high. So after the reunion, I don't think we stayed the whole time. We went to the hospital while she was in town because I was living in Houston where the family reunion was. She had drove into town for it. Her and my dad and I drove to the hospital. And basically, I received a diagnosis within a few days of that hospital stay, which 
is also pretty fortunate because my mom and dad are both in the medical field and they were able to pull a lot of strings with their network and get some answers for me fast. I understand that that was something that is not normal and I'm very fortunate for that because what ended up was I have this rare disease that has no cure and was attacking my body viciously and fast. And if I wouldn't have gotten seen or checked out within two months, I probably would have been dead. I finally got diagnosed in June of 2011, and they told me that the prognosis was about two months. So they were saying that I was probably not going to live to see my 21st birthday. So here I am. I'll be 31 this year, and I'm just grateful to be here. I'm so grateful to have you here. It's such a wild thing because I'm sitting here as you're saying that it took a few days to get that diagnosis. My physical everything just went like, what? You don't hear that. And it's interesting. And I appreciate you acknowledging that your parents were doctors and the fact that, you know, they pulled some strings because even though they pulled strings, many people have access or connections, but that doesn't mean that you automatically get answers. You may have better access but you don't necessarily get a diagnosis so quickly. So that's, you know, huge, huge, huge thing. So did the doctors think that this was something that you had had your whole life? Or was this something that just sort of came in recent months? This was something that to this day, I've been seen by a number of professionals all over the nation. And no one knows where this came from. No one understands why I got this or if it was something that was kind of dormant in my body or if I was more susceptible to it because my mom and I have the same blood type and she has an autoimmune disease. She has Graves' disease. And then her mother, my grandma, has sarcoidosis, which is also another autoimmune issue. So all three of us, you know, we have this gene, I guess, and that's what we're thinking that it is because I have a sister who's younger and she is perfectly healthy. So that's the closest that we can come up with an answer, but it's always going to be one of those huge what ifs in my life where I have no idea what caused it or what triggered it. So wild. So when you were told that you likely wouldn't make it to 21 and you were 20 at the time, What was that like? What was it like to hear that? It was devastating because for me, just like a lot of people, you know, especially in the U.S., 21 is the legal drinking age and I was finishing up school. I just now dipped my toe into the world of, you know, copy editing and PR, which is what I graduated with the degrees, public relations. And I was excited to start my career and to celebrate my birthday and to live and enjoy this life as, you know, it was totally different from what I had expected. I had no idea that my life would take the turn that it did. And I mean, I'm thankful for it. You know, now, obviously, I don't know any other life. I'm appreciative of the lessons that I've learned that I think take a lot longer for other people to learn or to grasp as far as just reaching a certain level of wisdom and understanding about this world and just life in general. And so, you know, I'm grateful for that, but it was devastating. I was on bed rest that whole year 
the rest of the year. I had to finish my classes in the special disability center, which at the time was just very embarrassing for me. I felt ashamed. I felt very out of place. I would go into the disability center and just didn't feel like I belonged because now all of a sudden I'm this disabled person who can't see and who can't walk and I can't do things on my own and I need assistance. And that was a really hard pill for me to swallow as someone who is so independent and so self-reliant. I needed a lot of help that year financially and physically. I had people who came over to help wash my laundry and cook for me and clean and even, you know, put me on the toilet sometimes and things like that. So it was a lot. I really had a hard time that year coping with that reality. I can't even imagine. What a huge transition from just thinking, all right, I'm going to graduate college and move on and find this career in PR and content writing and just live my life. And all of a sudden, you're on bed rest. So here you are 10 years later. What are the symptoms that you're dealing with? Because it sounds like that year was the toughest year. What's it been like the last 10 years from a symptom standpoint? Symptoms always fluctuate for me. I feel like every two years or so, or I've had really bad hospitalizations that have lasted longer than a week. And so in the interim, you know, between those from one year to two years later, I usually don't experience hospitalizations, but that to me is the level 10 of everything. Now, of course, I still deal with my everyday chronic pain that just stems from just joint and muscle issues. I have a lot of nerve pain, neuropathy in my limbs and my arms and legs. So I live in New York and I get around on foot and it can be hard sometimes to stand up or to walk long distances. I'm fatigued a lot because what I have is an arterial disease. So it affects my aorta, which our aorta carries blood away from the heart. And mine is all twisted up and it doesn't function properly. And so I have a lot of just issues with breathing and I'm constantly at risk for strokes and heart attacks if I'm highly stressed out, which is another factor living here um, with fireworks and with all the noise and chaos that happens outside a lot of times. My physical body is triggered often. And so over the years, I've had to really manage a lot of just my stress, my physical stress. And I can do what I can, but my physical body responds how it wants to. My mental state, on the other hand, I feel like I have more control of. My spirit and my mind are pretty strong, but my physical body reacts according to its environment. So I just try to really stay away from stressful situations as best as I can. And that's something that I had to learn early on those two things directly correlate with each other. And it really helped me prioritize certain things in my life and do away with others as far as relationships and just toxic environments in general. So the symptoms I face on the day-to-day, I would just clump it into that one category, which is just chronic pain. For people who don't experience it, it's one of those things that can be hard to imagine or envision is, you know, what does that feel like? It's just, for me, I would say it feels like you wake up every day 
and you're recovering from the flu or you're recovering from a marathon you just ran or you feel like you got hit by a car. Honestly, that's what my body feels like on a regular basis. So it's just a matter of me kind of navigating that and making sure that it doesn't tip over the edge to where I have to end up being hospitalized for it. Wow, that's a lot to deal with. So a few questions about that. One is you acknowledge a really good point of trying to explain to people what it's like when they are not in your physical body and they can't experience and understand it. What has that been like for you in navigating friendships, relationships, family, clients, or whatever you do as it relates to work? How do you present yourself or explain to people, you know, what you're going through so they can sort of understand? And friendships and everyone in my life, I've always prefaced everything. If I'm being invited to an event or if I have a work obligation or I am involved in a lot of different side organizations just for passion projects and such, I am huge on being transparent about my state, my physical state and my mental state that day. I've had an issue with this and I've had to curb it because it's not fair to others, but I've been a person who's known to overpromise and double book myself. And just because I'm highly ambitious and I like to think that I can get a lot done. And sometimes my physical bandwidth just doesn't allow it or my energy level is so low that I just cannot show up. I cannot do it, whatever the thing is. And so a lot of times I say yes. And I think the past few years, I've really learned the importance of saying no and the importance of having my access being revoked for some people, for certain personal relationships. When I realize there's a lot of give and take involved and there's more taking on, you know, from me than there is giving to me. And so over the years, I've cultivated really safe and comfortable space for myself in all of my social situations, in many of my work situations. And I feel respected with my boundary setting. And it's been important for me to do that and to just to maintain that and to be okay with saying no or saying I can't do it that day or I cannot come today because fill in the blank. That's something that I really struggled with for a long time. So I'm just now coming around to being okay with that. It's taken me some time. You have no idea how happy that makes me. I don't know if you know this, but I'm a business coach. Mm -hmm. And I am a massive, massive advocate of saying no and creating boundaries and really being clear on what it is that you want to do and what you can handle and manage, especially living with an invisible illness and knowing what your limits are. I think it's such an important thing to do. So thrilled that over time, you found that for yourself. You acknowledge that you've got the mental shift down a bit and you have that pretty clear. Are there any treatments or anything that helps you manage the pain and the different symptoms that you deal with on a daily basis? Yeah, I get a physical treatment or I call an infusion once every three months that really helps. I've been on quite a few over the years. I started in the very beginning when I was initially diagnosed, I started with this really harsh infusion treatment that I would get every few weeks called cytoxin. And then over the years, I transitioned to Actimra and 
a couple others. And at one point in time, I was taking about 24 pills a day. But now today I get a treatment or an infusion once every three months and it's called Rituxan. And so far it's really helped kind of manage and curb my really excruciating pain and symptoms. And on top of that, I try to maintain a balanced diet, whatever that can mean, because I'm still very indulgent. I cannot say no to sugar or sweets. That is my treat every single day. But I do stick with a plant-based diet, and I have been doing that for about four years now, and it's really helped. It's imperative for me to get my protein. I also take ginger shots in the morning, so I dabble in a lot of holistic, alternative, you know, not a lot, but some alternative forms of Eastern medicine and things that are herbal remedies. I'm really big on tea, herbal tea. And and yeah, and just mentally, I'm huge on keeping my space clean. Whatever space I sleep in and work in, especially working from home now during the pandemic, it's important for me to reduce the clutter that's around my space and to always work near natural light. And my bed is my sanctuary and I don't work on my bed ever. I always work away from my bed because I've been doing that since I was 13 years old. I read it in a Cosmopolitan magazine a long time ago. (laughs) It stuck with me and it's always worked because my bed, I can't associate it with the workspace. It is a place of rest. It is my escape from the world. And when I'm in bed, I'm in my safe haven. So, and I drink lots of water and I, I walk and I talk. I have a lot of conversation to get my creative juices flowing. And I try to do that as much as I can every day. I love that. There's so many good things in there. I love the bed concept. And unfortunately, during quarantine, I've been a little worse with that. And waking up in the morning, grabbing my computer and laying there for a few hours before I get on calls and stuff. But I'm totally with you on how much it shouldn't be that way, because it really should be served as that sanctuary. So I really appreciate you saying that. I am way with you on the ginger shot. Live for ginger shots. Yes, it's great. I don't know if it actually is like scientifically proven to do anything, but for me, I feel like it opens me up and it really recharges my system every time I wake up. So I've been a huge advocate for ginger. I've kind of steered away sometimes when the ginger shots are out at the store and I'll do turmeric or I do lemon, but I love a good shot that just really wakes my system up in the morning. So I could not agree more. Everyone that knows me knows I am a ginger obsessed person. (laughs) So let's shift a little bit in a video segment that Vice did about you. You share that during your diagnosis, you faced gender bias from doctors who thought that you were demanding or a diva, which like saying this makes me sick. Is that something that you continue to face as a patient? What's that experience been like for you? In the past three years or so, I haven't had to deal with that, thankfully. But it was something that in the beginning when my parents reached out to the first doctor for advice that they did, he totally dismissed me as just someone who is, I have really bad periods. And that's why I'm anemic. And, 
he was just attributing a lot of my symptoms at the time to having bad periods because I'm a passionate and stressed out woman who is in school and in this new relationship and working. And fast forward to 2017, which is probably the last time that I really experienced this gender discrimination and really like an icky feeling in the doctor room. I had a doctor rip my gown. He ripped it really aggressively and then jammed the stethoscope under my breast to listen to my heart. And I remember it felt so gross to me. I never saw him again, but that was something that it just felt like he had crossed a line, a physical line, and it felt a little bit like, you know, just some kind of form of harassment. I remember even one time in 2015, I was in an ER and the medic was holding my hand and on the way to the hospital and he started like holding my hand and rubbing it in a a lover type of way. And he was looking me in my eyes and he was saying like how beautiful my eyes were. And I couldn't even breathe and I felt so defenseless and I had this really weird person just gripping my my hand so tightly and rubbing it and just felt very uncomfortable and inappropriate. And then complimenting my eyes when I looked like I was sick, I felt very sick. And I just remembered that feeling as well. But since then, I haven't dealt with anything. I'm happy to hear you haven't dealt with something since, but I still hate hearing those stories. It's so sickening that people think that's acceptable. And I wonder if it changes, you know, how you decide what doctors you choose or what practitioners you work with in order to find someone who is going to respect you. Yeah, I'm a huge supporter and advocate for looking at reviews, reading reviews, and just getting personal testimonies. Instagram, I think, started a year into my health journey. But before that, I was really big on certain blogs and message boards. And I would ask people in local cities for their recommendations. And that was important to me to just have someone personally vouch for a specialist for me to look into. And it was really important for me to get down to the bottom of the issues of my health. And I was willing to travel for certain people, you know, based on their recommendations. So the person who actually diagnosed me, he was in cahoots with other uh, specialists who my family really respected across the nation at John Hopkins in Baltimore, and then in Austin and in Houston. And so most important or the most helpful thing for me is relying on referrals, personal referrals. And I've found that through a number of ways. I am completely with you and everything for me in my life is referrals. I always find it fascinating when people find things on Google and I'm like, how do you know this stuff is reliable? I mean, I'm with you on testimonials and reviews, but to just do a search just feels so you have no idea what's going on in that world. You mentored advocating, which is obviously advocating for yourself but you're also passionate about advocating for queer and disability rights and also mm-hmm. for patients with chronic illness. How do you take action when it comes to advocacy? What does that look like for you? 
on a day-to-day basis, it just looks like me being who I am, just confidently and naturally. I am very proud of everything. I represent every single community that I'm a part of. And I think, you know, my intention is by living loudly and loudly, but subtly at the same time, I don't feel a need to have to overcompensate or shove my identity down people's throats. But I feel like when I'm in community with my creative family, my creative folks, or my freelancer folks, or my music lovers, I just so happen to have a chronic illness, and I just so happen to be queer, and the conversation can naturally shift to appease or adapt to a person like me in the room. And I love that about my community, about my friends. I'm in a lot of spaces, but at the same time, I've curated at least at the very minimum, people around me who consider and respect my lifestyle, no matter if it's a lifestyle as a disabled person or a chronically ill person or a queer person or a Black person or someone who wears her hair out in an Afro. And people understand my my style of dress. You know, I have tattoos and I've been in the corporate space for a while, but I still, I will wear dirty Chuck Taylors and shorts to a meeting. And that's who I am. And that in no way, shape or form should be associated with my work ethic, my ambition, my creativity. I'm an ideas machine and I get the job done and I'm a great writer and I'm a very skilled editor. And that's what's important. And in any professional setting, in any social setting, who I am is who I am. And so I think that is the biggest form of advocacy that any of us can perform. Well said. That's it. Love it. I love that you are just so uniquely you and own that and that the people you surround yourself with accept you for who you are, not that it should be any other way. And I appreciate you acknowledging the concept in the corporate level and the work level. If people don't want to work with you because of the way that you look or the things that define you or are a part of you, then this is not a good partnership. Just goes back to the boundaries and saying no concept. Can you actually talk a little bit about your work and what it is that you do and why you feel so called to do the work that you do? Yeah, I am a writer. I learned to read and read my first novel when I was four years old, and I started writing shortly after. I remember finishing the novel. I don't remember what it was, but I remember finishing it and thinking to myself that I could have written it better. And that was the first time I picked up a pen and a notebook and started writing, and I started journaling I've been journaling every day since then, since I was about five years old. And then I started entering, you know, myself into contests. The thing I love about my parents is that they totally encouraged me to just do what I want and what felt right. They weren't those parents who pushed me into a sport or an activity. And, you know, they took time to listen to their daughter and pay attention to what really inspired me and fueled me. And writing was that thing. And so I would enter my work into contests. I remember when I would do the written portion of exams, I would get so much praise from my teachers and the principal that I felt, well, this can be repurposed into 
something, you know, a contest on a statewide level or a national level. So I would take my exams and I would go into them into contests for money and for prizes. And I started doing that when I was about eight years old. And that was also, I think, my first taste of just entrepreneurship and learning to really own my craft and learning how to monetize from it. And so I did that my whole school career after college and getting into the PR field. I realized I really had a knack for advertising and just creating copy for ads and you know, the big umbrella of what I do is digital strategy and copy editing, but it could be web copy. I also do package copy for products that are in retail stores across the nation. Right now, I name products for a living. So it's just all kinds of products for all kinds of major retailers. But I also consult with brands on marketing campaigns, like huge wellness and beauty brands. And I used to write a lot of articles. I was a journalist for some time and an editor for a publication, but I stopped that in 2017. And every now and then I'll contribute an article here or there for a publication as a freelancer. But yeah, writing and editing is my passion. And anything digital and creative, that is me. That's what fuels me. That's what really motivates me. It's just, I think... And, and being me and really owning my identity is important because I like to kind of, you know, include that into certain ideas or suggestions for campaigns that when brands come up to me and they inquire about names and, you know, themes for marketing strategies, I like to make sure that they're inclusive and that they are reflective of things that are really happening in this world and people and societies and social norms that need to be addressed and represented. So incredible. What's so cool about that is that yes, you are so you and you're public on Instagram and sharing your story and your health and your experience through this all. And I'm sure that's what resonates with people. People hire you because they're like, Oh, here's this super honest, genuine person. We want her to help us represent ourselves in that same way. Right. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, and it's and it's an honor. I've been in very few situations professionally where I felt like I needed to minimize anything about myself or dim my light because I'm really intentional about who I work with. And I think I've set that tone so much. So when people and brands or like organizations or what have you approach me, a lot of times I think that's just a clear understanding that I don't have to spell out for them, which is great. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from BetterHelp. That's Better H-E-L-P, an online counseling service that matches you with a licensed professional therapist. No matter where you are in the world, BetterHelp lets you schedule video and phone sessions with your therapist or even text them. Not only is it convenient, but it's also affordable. BetterHelp's therapists specialize in many different issues from depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, self-esteem, and more. I've talked with many guests about the importance of therapy, and it's something I believe everyone can benefit from. It's so valuable to be able to talk to someone with an informed outsider's perspective. With BetterHelp, you can have these conversations at your own pace 
through a secure online platform and with a counselor you love and who gets you. It's not self-help, it's BetterHelp. Made Visible listeners can get 10% off their first month of BetterHelp by visiting betterhelp.com backslash made visible. That's betterhelp.com slash made visible. And now back to the show. Yesterday, I actually had a dentist appointment and with a new dentist. I was so shocked in the greatest way because I had a lot of anxiety of the procedure I was getting done. And the dentist walked in. I thought he was a patient because he didn't have scrubs. He had his mask and he had all the necessary, like he had his gloves and everything, but he wasn't wearing scrubs. He was wearing a normal, like a fitted t-shirt and jeans and some cowboy boots. And then he was tatted up. I loved it. His appearance and his approach to everything really calmed my stress level down. And I asked, I requested for him to let me know as he's doing everything, what he's doing, so I can just be on the same page. And he was very knowledgeable. And he didn't sound like what one would think he looks like. And if you saw him walking down the street, you wouldn't think or assume that he was a dentist with his own practice. So I just really love that. It really reinforced this whole thing in my head that it's so important for us to just own who we are and what makes us us and our work ethic and you know our diligence and our discipline in whatever skill set will speak for itself if people just give us that chance. And I love that. I love that too. And I love this dentist, I think I'm going to need his information. (laughs) Like, when do you hear that, especially about a dentist? But you brought up a point, which is masks, which is the current state Mm -hmm. of the world right now. How have you been navigating this time during COVID? It's been challenging, especially being back in New York, because I was quarantined in Texas for a while. I left at just the right time because They're not taking it as seriously. So I decided to leave and I knew I was putting myself at risk by getting on the plane and coming back. But I still had my apartment. I was really missing my bed. So I've been back for a week now and just having to get acclimated again to walking around and being around large groups of people, walking past people on the streets and the sidewalks makes me a little nervous. But I've been very intentional about Uh, keeping my distance socially and keeping my mask on at all times. Sometimes I'm out of breath because I walk so much or if I'm running errands, but I keep it on because that's my way of showing that I respect myself and I respect people around me. And I, I haven't really had a lot of issues with that. I've also gotten tested. And the good thing about New York is that the accessibility to test is different here than it is in other places. And it's encouraged here to get tested as much as you feel like you need to based on your lifestyle. So it's been important for me anytime that I, you know, I took public transportation for the first time a few days ago and I went and got tested the next day because I don't want to take any chances. So I'm going to continue being pretty adamant about that. And I've been encouraging all of my friends when they ask, when are we going to hang out? When am I going to see you? What are your test results? And how long ago did you get that? And what have you done since then? You know, and then we can figure something out, maybe. But I have no problem right now with that. It's just really helping me reinforce my boundaries even more. So 
Do you feel like you're at a higher risk because of your health? Oh, yeah, for sure. I'm highly immunocompromised. It's part of of the illness, the Takayasu's. So I have to be very careful because I would be one of the people who wouldn't receive the good end of the stick when it comes to bouncing back and recovering easily. And since I know that this has really, really impacted the way that I draw boundaries, physical boundaries and parameters around my needs, my medical needs, because I can't slip up. I cannot afford to slip up whatsoever because my life really depends on me being really diligent about this. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. And I think one of the interesting things we're observing right now is that as New York reopens and as the country has reopened, it's not going away anytime soon. And just because restaurants are open and public transportation is accessible doesn't mean that it's necessarily the right thing for us to be doing as the immunocompromised people that we are, unfortunately. Right. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about this. I really love the advocacy work that you do and how much you are so you. So where can people learn more about you, read your writing, and potentially hire you? Everything right now is my name. If you just Google me and you want to read my blog or if you want to follow me on Instagram or Twitter or anything, it's Devry Velasquez. The first name is Devry, D-E-V-R-I. And hopefully it auto like populates because I know Velasquez can be kind of a weird name to spell. We'll be sure to include that in the show notes and everywhere so everyone can check you out. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Thank you so much. This was fun. Thanks for tuning in to Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do any of this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com and follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor, Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer, Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music, and Amanda Grisillo for the design.